is the Mulberry Lane Show. The Mulberry Lane Show. Exclusive interviews, fun, music, celebrities. Your weekend getaway. Here's Mulberry Lane, Rachel, Bo, and Ellie Cat. Be a part of the family. Well, it's the first weekend of 2018. Woo. Glad you're here with us. It's the Mulberry Lane Show. Rachel here with your radio sisters, Bo and Allie. And you're in for an hour of music, arts, and lifestyle. Yeah. Well, happy 2018 from your radio sisters. And let's walk through the door of this new year together. Let's get to those guest sisters. <laughs> The Mulberry Lane Show's on Celebrity story songs You're gonna have it going on When we tell you who's stopping by now Up first today, iconic trumpet player Record label exec, Grammy winner Basically iconic everything (laughs) Herb Alpert is here today Guys, Herb Alpert is the master, and you're going to find out why. We get into his creativity, his decision-making process, and wow, one impressive guy, and you're going to get a lot of stories today. Whatever the occasion is, Herb Alpert always makes a very smooth soundtrack. And our dad would agree. (laughs) Okay, Rachel, who's up next? Okay, well, you're going to want to meet two-time Emmy award-winning travel journalist and producer Ashley Colburn. Now, Ashley has a very interesting story. She films her travels for shows that are aired on many different stations. You're going to want to hear about her newest series, Wonders. And you'll get some really good behind the scenes of how she formed her own production company and produces these shows so she can have creative control. Yes, and creating a career that fits your interests, you just can't beat that. That's right. Okay, Allie, who's next? Well, do you ever have road rage? If so, or if you know someone with road rage, you're going to want to get to know Dirk Nivelle. Now, Dirk wrote a tongue-in-cheek book called Road Rage Justified, and it's going to simply point out some everyday driving mistakes that you might be making. If you've got a new driver in the family, this would be a very good book to get them. It does remind you to be courteous and think of other drivers. And if you or someone you know is guilty of tailgating or maybe blocking a car from changing lanes, this might be a good winter read for you. (laughs) Yes, so you've got a show today full of jazz, travel, and some friendly advice to avoid road rage. Way to start out the new year. That's right. (laughs) Several resolutions in there. Okay, well, Allie, since we do have a topic today, road rage, you had a little bit of a road incident yourself this week. Oh, I did. Okay, so my son Luke is part of a peanut desensitization program through an allergist in Des Moines. And so he's on small doses of peanuts that every week or every time we drive to Des Moines, we updose. This is for kids with peanut allergies. Yes, or adults with peanut allergies. So every couple of weeks, we're driving to Des Moines. And this past week, we left a little bit late for our appointment. So I was kind of speeding to get there. Not kind of. (laughs) Speeding. I actually didn't really realize how fast I was going. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I did get pulled over by an Iowa patrolman. He was really nice, but I did get a ticket. But I did have a little bit of a blonde moment that happened right after I got the ticket. Yes, this is good. 
So I was feeling, you know, a little bit flustered afterwards, a little bit shaken up, and I thought, okay, I'm just gonna take the next exit and go through McDonald's. So <laughs> stress eater. Yes, there's nothing that an egg McMuffin can't fix. So I went to the drive-thru, ordered, and then when I got to the window to pay, instead of handing over my credit card, I accidentally gave her my driver's license. <laughs> so I had just given the officer my driver's license and I was just like in that mode. She was like, um, a driver's license? And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I just got a speeding ticket on the interstate. And then she really laughed and she was like, that's the first time anyone has ever tried to pay for their food with the driver's license. <laughs> Leave it to Allie. <laughs> so all is well. And I just have to make sure I pay my ticket by February 5th. All right. I'll remind you. Okay, we'll stay right there in whatever lane you're in today. We'll be right back with Jazz Grade and founder of AM Records, Herb Alpert. Woo, keep it right here on the Mulberry Lane Show with your radio sisters. We'll speed you through the next hour. Meet the celebrities on your radio station. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Well, the word legend and icon are tossed around rather casually in the music business today. But when you sold over 72 million albums, founded the iconic A&M Records, and inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you've got a Grammy Trustee Award, and you funded college music schools, you've earned that distinction several times over. Now you can meet this legendary jazz trumpet player, composer, record executive, artist, and philanthropist, Herb Alpert, right now. Herb Alpert here on the show. Iconic <laughs> career, ready, set, here we go. Oh, what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> Great to have you. Thank you so much. We could probably talk to you for about three hours, but <laughs> let's start with you have been at a point in your life for a while where you can record and tour because you love it and this is your passion. You don't need money or fame. So how does this for you affect, you know, the recording process and the performances? Oh, that's a really good question. I got hooked when <laughs> I had this incredible opportunity when I was eight years old in my grammar school. There was a music appreciation class, and there was a table filled with various instruments. I happened to pick up the trumpet, okay. and it obviously changed my life because even at that time, you know, when I finally made a sound out of it, it was talking for me because I was super shy. I was uh, an introvert, mm. and uh, the trumpet was uh, my voice. So uh, it had an amazing effect on the rest of my life. Being to the place where you can do it for the enjoyment of it has got to be very freeing. It's out of my control because it's something I need. I'm a creative guy. You know, I, I'm 85% on the right side of my brain. So I paint and I sculpt. I make music. Recording is one of my real passions. I love to do it. I love to try to take songs that are familiar to people and to myself and see how many different ways I can do it. Mm -hmm. They, like, become new songs. Uh -huh. And that's kind of what you did with your current album, Music uh, well, That was my pursuit. You know, I wanted to make positive music. I think we're going through a strange time right now uh -huh. in our country and around the world. There's a lot of negative energy. I wanted to make a positive album, an album that has an upside of life. The songs you chose, was that kind of the overriding theme for the decisions? You know, I have this incredible ability to uh, be an audience to my own music. Okay. So when I'm recording, I'm not listening to the trumpet player. I'm listening to the overall feeling. And if it feels good for me, I stop. And if it doesn't feel good, I try to get it to the place where it does give me the goosebumps. 
And if I can't get it to that place, then I just drop it. I just go for the next song. Okay. So you don't really hone in on the details of what you're playing. You more have objective ears, and you're kind of hearing it from the audience standpoint. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's a good, good, good thought as well. I, I like to think that uh, my music is very spontaneous. You know, with the zeros and ones and the computers and the technology we have, you know, you can have umpteen million yes. tracks. Right. So that could be a disadvantage to a lot of artists because you clean it up so much you take the heart out of it. Uh-huh. You and can I, I try get to, to perfection. Yeah. Oh, I, I try to keep the spontaneity. Look, when I started, I know it was before your time, but I had a wire tape recorder. Okay. <laughs> it was a Webcore wire tape recorder, and then there was mono, one track, and then there okay. were two tracks, and then three and four and eight, and, and now it's uh, zeros and ones. It's just endless, so it can trap you as an artist. Mm-hmm. It can make you do things that you really shouldn't be doing, because it should be spontaneous, and that's why I think jazz is such an important art form, because it's of the moment. It's just right. it's that thing that happens once. You're here shooting the musical breeze with legendary performer, artist, record company executive, and multiple Grammy winner, Herp Alpert, here on the Mulberry Lane Show. So now take us back to that time in the 60s when you were recording and you multi-tracked the trumpet for the first time. Yeah, I guess it was around 1958 or 59 I heard How High the Moon by Les Paul, Mary Ford. And Les was uh, stacking his guitar. I mean, he was recording on top of his own, uh, you know, car- not saying this right. <laughs> <laughs> he was recording his guitar on top of itself. Yeah, like multiple tracks like, oh, of the that, same that, that sounds really sexy. I know <laughs> that's what was happening. <laughs> Anyways, he was doing that, and then I thought, mm, let me try that with the trumpet. I had two tape machines at uh, my little studio in, in my garage, and uh, boom, out came that uh, sound. And I said, whoa, that's a nice sound. That was the genesis of the Tijuana brass sound, and I. I well, there's your the ears again. Your ears knew that, that people would embrace that sound. When it feels good for me, I feel like, well, maybe there'll be a few other people that might like it. Okay. I, I never thought about trying to make hit records. I try to make good records. Throughout your career, you've made a lot of what it seems like with all your success, a lot of right choices, you know, from your mentors to collaborators to, you know, the choices you made in the studio, doubling the, the trumpet. And, of course, when you were at A&M, the artists you signed. Do you feel like you are aligned in a way most people aren't? Or did you just do a lot of reading and listening and searching <laughs> and practicing? No, I, you know, I don't have any formula. I really don't. I try to be as honest as I can. I learned a great deal from the great Sam Cooke when I worked with him in the early days. He was um, a special artist. I mean, one thing in particular stands out for me is he used to carry around a notebook with uh, lyrics, and one day he came up to me, he says, Herbie, what do you think of this uh, lyric here? And I, I was reading the lyric and thinking to myself, I didn't say this to him, but I was thinking, man, this is the corniest lyric I've ever, <laughs> I've ever seen. I said, Sam, what is the, uh, what's the song like? What, what's the melody? He picked up his guitar and played with his passionate way and started singing this lyric in a way that all of a sudden I got the aha. I, okay. it, not what you do, it's the way how you do it. Uh-huh. So he turned this corny lyric into magic for me. Yeah. And from that point on, I realized that it's about passion. It's about really, you know, doing what you really feel is uh, right to do now, as an artist. he recorded and, your song that you co-wrote, Wonderful World. Yeah, and that was recorded as a demo, by the way. 
Sam just wanted to see if the song would work, and the company put it on the shelf. They didn't release it until, you know, Sam left Keen Records and recorded for RCA Victor. And when he had all that success, Keen Records Company decided to release that demo <laughs> that uh, okay. Sam made, and it turned out to be one of his biggest records. So now when you heard that vocal and his interpretation of your lyrics for the first time, what was your reaction on it? Even though it was I thought it was good. I didn't, uh-huh. you know, I didn't think that uh, it was going to be as big as it ended up being. But uh-huh. you never know. You know, timing plays a huge part in every artist's success. Yeah. You have to be at the right place at the right time, and if you're ready to uh, go through the door, then you you got something going. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, timing, it's exactly. timing. If we tried to start A and M Records now in today's environment, it wouldn't have happened. I don't think. You said you're a right brain guy. But you had to make a lot of left brain decisions when you're running a record label. So how did you deal with those kinds my of left, decisions? My left brain decision was getting myself a partner that <laughs> had a left brain. <laughs> well, that makes that easier then, right? <laughs> yeah. No, my left brain can work. But, you know, at A&M, we started in my garage. And there were the two of us, then three, then five, then 20, then 40, then 100, and then two... You know, and so we were having these weekly meetings with lawyers and accountants, and I realized, man, that ain't my thing. I I can't even follow these people. And it was digging into my creativity. So I kind of stood back from that, and and I was involved in the major decisions that we made at A&M. I didn't want to do the everyday nuts and bolts. It just didn't work for me. Got to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from this legendary musical icon, Herb Alpert. Much more to learn. Keep it right here with your radio sisters on The Mulberry Lane Show. Bringing you the stories behind the songs. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Thanks for keeping it here on the Mulberry Lane Show. If you're just joining us, you're listening to part two of a recent chat with legendary music guy Herb Alpert. Now, he was known for his Tijuana brass and has sold over 72 million albums, along with starting the iconic AM Records, Grammy winning songwriter and performer. He's also a painter and sculptor and a philanthropist. This guy has about done it all and done it all very, very well. He's sharing a lot of really cool stories with you here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Let's get back with Herb Alpert. You let Waylon Jennings out of his contract because he wanted to go more country. And you knew he had something and he would probably be a star, but you let him out of the contract. Was that the artist in you? Oh, yeah. That was the turning point for me with A&M. I knew if we could do that, then, then we were going to be successful because we were looking at it from his point of view, from right, Waylon's from point artist. of view. Yeah. And Waylon was a great guy, a wonderful artist. I did want to take him a little more pop, and he wanted to really be a country artist. Mm-hmm. And he got this phone call from uh, Chet Atkins, who was, uh, you know, Mr. Country, who was the head of RCA in Nashville. And he told us about it, and I remember the day we signed the release, and I looked at my partner, I said, I think this guy's going to be a huge star. Uh-huh. And my partner said, yeah, I think so too, and we both knew it. Because uh-huh. Waylon had something, whatever that it thing is, yeah, yeah, he yeah. had it. Yeah. 
So, so how uh, come we don't operate like that anymore? I mean, our labels have become such machines and businesses. Well, because a lot of these labels are handled by bottom-line people, like lawyers, and they're making bottom-line decisions. When we sold A&M, for instance, they wanted to know how much money they're going to make in the next six months. I mean, there's no way of calculating that. You don't know yeah. what type of records are going to be selling. And you selling. knew you had to get out at that point. Well, I knew something was up. You know, at first I was willing to sell 49%, but they kept upping the situation. And I had a sense something was coming around the corner. You know, I didn't really put it into my brain as uh, file sharing and zeros and ones are going to, you know, Uh devastate the record industry. I didn't have that, but I felt something. Uh And then they kept up in the price, and then we said, okay, you know, let's do it. The timing is, is right. So now when you were ahead of A&M, how did you decide what bands you would sign? Was it a gut thing? Oh, it was totally gut. Okay. I, I learned from Sam Cooke to close my eyes, listen to a group, don't be intimidated if they're wonderful to look at and they can dance, you know, around the room. I was just listening for the feeling, and if okay. the feeling hit me, I, I, I was in. You know, when I heard the Carpenters, it wasn't the music that... I normally gravitate towards, but I recognize that voice that Karen had, and when I met with them, it, it was a real sincere... What they were putting out was really the music that was coming out of them naturally, and Richard was a, a student of the record business. He knew about recording and recording technique. He had a good flair for songs, and he knew how to uh, get the most out of Karen, and then, you know, I gave them Close to You. I gave oh, them that song. Wow. <clears throat> And uh, they recorded it, and Karen was playing drums on the first recording. And when I heard it, I said, no, this doesn't work yet. Let's try this one again. And it wasn't until we got the wrecking crew, we got Hal Blaine on drums and Joe Osborne on bass. And then the record got really deep, and and Richard made this beautiful arrangement. And I I remember the day I heard the master, and then I played it for Burt Backrack over the phone, and he just about fainted. I mean, he just loved it, wow. and so did I. And, it, you know, we didn't have any idea that it was going to be as big as it was. I mean, it just opened the door wide for these two wonderful artists. Mm-hmm. And that was the time when record labels nurtured their artists and allowed them the creative freedom to grow and try things. That's what we did as a company. You know, we had some wonderful artists that didn't necessarily have a hit record right off the bat, but we knew that if they're doing concerts, they can flag themselves down the runway with uh, that type of input. Well, you're listening to the Mulberry Lane Show with a special guest, Herb Alpert, here. And you're listening to his journey as a trumpet player, composer, record executive, artist, and philanthropist. How important was the decision to marry your wife, Lonnie? It wasn't a decision. (laughs) No, it wasn't a decision. It was uh, luck. This timing again, you know. Good timing tends to follow you around, doesn't it? Well, um, I don't know. I think it follows everyone around. You got to know when to strike. (laughs) I think I think good gut decisions follow you around. You know, I I I kind of live by my gut. I I live by the feelings I have, and when it feels right, I I go for it. And you guys have been married for over forty years, and you tour and travel together. So, what's your secret? Well, she's my guardian angel and my muse. You know, she's an amazing person outside of being a world-class artist. I mean, she changed my life. She really did change my life. And I'm very, very lucky to have Lonnie in my life. And I loved seeing you guys on your new video for I'm Yours. You can sense your love. And that was such a clever video as well. 
Yeah, it's, it's getting amazing attention on yes. YouTube. It's over 700,000 uh, hits on it in less than a, a month. Yeah. So it's, it's fantastic. Awesome. You are also a sculptor and a painter. And, of course, you have this passion for music. So when you get up in the morning, how do you decide which art pursuit you're going to do for that day? Well, I usually play a couple notes on the horn and just kind of stay in shape with the horn. And then I'll walk in at the paint studio and, and look at the latest painting that I'm working on and see if I can do something to it that'll make it better. And I have this uh, wax system in the kitchen. So I heat up this wax and then mold it into a shape that makes me feel good. And then when I get a shape that I really like, that might be like four inches, five inches high, I'll take it into the sculpture studio, which I have, and two guys that come on Monday and Tuesday to help me. And if, if I like this shape, we transfer it up to about three or four feet. And if that really works, then we go up to, you know, 14, 15, 18 feet and make these bronze totems or whatever shape I'm doing. You know, I have nine totems at the Field Museum in Chicago at the moment. Okay. There's eight huge ones as you approach the uh, facility, and then there's one monster inside that's about 18 feet wow. in bronze. And, I mean, it's been great. I, I'm a lucky... I have... I'm lucky. You know, I, I feel like I, I'm not uh, taking it for granted. I wake up each morning thankful that you know, life has been good to me, and I try to pass it on and with uh, the Herb Alpert Foundation. I know so many kids are out there that you know, would like to be doing something creative, but, uh, you know, they come from terrible backgrounds. Right. and They're looking for the same thing we're all looking for. They're looking for a life of purpose. Mm-hmm. So uh, I try to, you know, reach out and help those kids if I can. And I think uh, being creative at a real early age is an important ingredient to uh, developing the whole person. I agree. With the funding of music in schools decreasing every year, it's a sad thing to witness. It's not only sad, it's terrible. It's, it's anti-helpful. It's not the right thing to do. These politicians don't get it. And how, Uh, you know, it helps develop the whole person. Absolutely. And uh, it's a win-win because, you know, if a kid can get excited about their creativity, not necessarily being a musician, you could, with writing poetry, dance. dance, yeah. Yeah, sculpting, painting, whatever that happens to be. If you can get involved in your own thing and feel good about your own uniqueness, because everyone's unique, you might be able to uh, appreciate the uniqueness in others, and mm-hmm. that's a win-win. And, of course, when you start learning an instrument or learning how to write, you know, express yourself, it folds over into the academics because there's a little discipline that's involved. You just can't do it because you want to. You have to work at it. And I always tell kids, you know, what's the secret to my success? Well, I don't have the secret, but I'll tell you one thing. you got to practice every day. Get good at what you're doing because while you're sleeping, Someone else who wants the same thing you do is uh, practicing. That's absolutely true. true. Yeah. Yeah. So now Music Volume 1 has been released, and I'm assuming since it's called Volume 1, there's going to be subsequent volumes following. Oh, yeah. I'm already on it. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So you got to promise us when Volume 2 is out, you come back and visit. Well, I will for sure, and you're going to love Volume 2. I got some things in Volume 2 that are fantastic, awesome. but I don't want to undersell Volume 1. I, I think Volume 1 is a really good record. So, Thank you so thanks. much. Okay, good luck, you guys. Herb Albert here on the Mulberry Lane Show. When we come back, it's two-time award-winning TV producer, host, and travel expert Ashley Colburn. Keep it right here with us. Oh, 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 o
music, arts, and lifestyle. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Well, two-time Emmy Award-winning travel series producer Ashley Colburn has filmed in many exotic destinations and done incredible things, like climbing the Matterhorn in Switzerland, all on camera. Now, Ashley joins your weekend to chat about her amazing journeys and lets you know what it takes to become a producer and travel journalist. Welcome, welcome to the show, Ashley Colburn. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, now it seems like you have the dream career, writing and (laughs) filming your travels. So how did you find this path? Well, I always actually thought I wanted to be a news reporter, and I kind of started that route. I went to Colorado State University, and I majored in broadcast journalism, and I actually did do the whole news thing for a while. And then I guess you could say I always dreamed of traveling, like I always did think this would be my dream job. I would watch Samantha Brown. Uh-huh. But there was not really a way that I would say that someone would say, oh, like, this is how you do it. Or Right. This These are the step steps you step need to do. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of just figured it out on my own. When I graduated, I worked for a TV station, which is now referred to as AWE, A-W-E for about two and a half years. But right when I started working there, I had the idea of filming my first travel show in Croatia. Okay, so now why Croatia? (laughs) So, funny enough, my brother had just finished backpacking all around Europe, and when I was looking at his pictures, I saw a place called Plifice Lakes. And I was like, where in the world is this? And he goes, oh, that's Croatia. He said, oh, it was my favorite place in Europe. So I guess you could say it just became the top place that I wanted to visit on my next vacation. So lucky enough, I was able to go there. So now, did you present this to your bosses kind of thing? And did they give you a budget? yeah. Before we ever did any show, as the producer, you know, we had to, like, come up with a show rundown and what was going to go into the show, what it was going to cost, the budget, everything. And so I presented that to my boss, and he actually happened to love Croatia, had been there. And I didn't know that. you didn't know that. And so three weeks later, I went. I had already done all my research on what I wanted to film there. And then that show was a success. And so they said, keep doing this. Next thing you know, a few weeks later, I was in Turkey. And then we did two seasons of Takeoff with Ashley Colburn and filmed in 25 countries over those two and a half years. So now, do you have a favorite thing you did? Well, funny enough, you happened to mention it in my intro, but uh, (laughs) climbing the Matterhorn was pretty surreal. I remember when that all happened. And the reason I had the idea was I was filming my news series in Switzerland. Kind of to back up a little bit, in 2011, when I left the TV station, I started my own production company because I wanted the shows to be aired all around the world. And, you know, working for one station, I wasn't able to distribute them on my own. So so that's what I did. But then the past few years, I've been filming a series called Wonders. And I filmed Wonders of Switzerland. And one of the episodes was in Zermatt, where the Matterhorn is. And it just so happened that that next year was going to be the 150th anniversary of the first climb. So I said, (laughs) not knowing what this entailed, Oh, well, I should climb the Matterhorn. (laughs) And 
they at first were like, oh, that's a great idea. My parents didn't think so. But, uh, you know, the people I was working with were like, that's a fabulous idea. So then I looked into the training and what all it involved entailed and had to do a few test climbs to make sure that I was like physically fit and was going to survive (laughs) it. I climbed two other mountains and they said, okay, you can do it. So just doing that was pretty amazing and looking back on it. And you filmed the whole thing, too. So you've got documented proof, right? I know. I know. Sometimes I look back on it and I'm like, well, I forget to take pictures or I forget to do this. But what's great about it is I have a whole video of it. You have the video of the whole thing. Yeah. Uh Filming this wonder, do you come up with the destinations and the places? Yeah. So... I was able to film Wonders of Croatia, and then I went and did Slovenia and Latvia and Switzerland. So I really did a lot in Europe. Okay. Uh, right now, I'm in the process of Wonders of Asia. Okay. So, so far, I've done Hong Kong, Singapore, Philippines, and then just got back from China as okay. well. So now, do yeah. you edit? So what I do is, we call it the offline edit. Like, I kind of do the rough edit. Okay. And then I have an editor who's really adding in the music and the graphics okay. and all that. So you're like the prep chef. Exactly. Like if they were in the field with me, imagine if you just gave them a bunch of folders, even if you were so organized. It's just kind of easier for me to do it. Uh So the turnaround is usually a couple months because obviously it's a bunch of footage to go through and then having the time and writing it and recording it and all that. So Mm -hmm. they're 52-minute shows, so it is a lot of work. Travel host and producer Ashley Colburn here on the Mulberry Lane Show. And then have you ever been in any dangerous situations? Uh, the only time I was ever in, like, kind of a crazy situation was I was at a market on some random street in uh, Sri Lanka. But it was one of those things where I knew I should have left. You kind of learn to, like, when we got there, bringing the camera into that situation, I thought, oh, this will be really good video with tons of people moving around. But these people were working you know, and we were kind of disrupting that, like getting in the middle of it and, you know, going by with carts and stuff. And so it really wasn't that I was in a dangerous situation. It was more like I lost my cameraman. Like there was too many people, okay. crowded situations, right. you know, we were separated uh-huh. and, you know, like almost had just like a little bit of a panic, like, oh uh-huh. my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, here all alone. And then, yeah. And then our guide said to us, though, uh, I would never have taken you there, but I was the one who suggested you. So, <laughs> you know, you kind of live in learn through a lot uh-huh. of it but again no real dangerous situations but if I ever am by myself you know like after dark I don't go roam the street okay you know, yeah, it's just common sense those. yeah exactly and then how much of what you do do you actually keep the footage of like what you do in the field and then how much is overdub later so for instance like when we are doing interviews um, with local people or activities those are like the meat and potatoes of the show. Okay. That's what I'm going through and editing myself. And then, like, let's say they didn't say something or maybe we got there and they said they were going to speak English and then they didn't. And I'm like, oh, I don't ever say like, okay, we'll throw that out. We're not going to do it. We still film the whole thing. And then I go back and write it and do a voiceover. So I would okay. say the whole show is about like 50-50 between interviews and then voiceovers because a lot of the voiceovers too I have to set the stage like the location you know coming out of commercial Uh now we're here we travel north that type of thing so set the stage for whatever region we're then going to be covering or what we're doing before we let you go what would you say to the person who is interested in doing what you do what recommendations or advice would you give them about stepping into this field 
Well, obviously people see what I do and a lot of people want to do it. And I always say, or they'll say, I want to do exactly what you're doing. And my thought initially is always like, yeah, but I'm doing that. So you need to find your way of making it your own. You know, Uh a lot of times people will say, okay, but your travel show, like, what do you cover? Are you a food expert? Are you a wine expert? Are you totally crazy and adventurous? And like, it took me a while to be like, well, hmm, I will do everything. But there's a little bit of everything in my Uh show. But I think that my strength is the connection with the people, whether that's learning their traditional dance, really appreciating their culture. And, like, you see that in the show. Okay. That's where you go, oh, uh-huh. my gosh, that's where she's, like, thriving and whatnot. Okay. So when people say they want to do something similar, I tell them to find what makes them different than others, you know, in the business. And then also, you really do have to learn it all. I think it was a blessing that I wanted to do news first because I learned how to work quick, hard, and learned it all. Mm -hmm. And so I got thrown into a situation and always made the most of it. Well, Ashley, it's been really amazing getting to know you and what you do. It's a fascinating career, and we'll be watching for the new series. All right. Well, thank you. And everyone can follow along on social media, Instagram especially. Where in the world is Ashley Colburn? Exactly. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you. Travel journalist and producer Ashley Colburn here on the Mulberry Lane Show. When we come back, if you've got a new driver in the family, you're not going to want to miss this one. Meet the author of the book, Road Rage Justified, Dirk Novelle, up next. Get out the map, get out the map, lay your finger anywhere down. Leave the figure into those We've got you covered. The Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Well, is there a brand new driver in your family, or maybe you know that person who either wittingly or unwittingly has some rather rude driving habits, you know, that could lead to road rage, either for them or someone else? Author Dirk Novell has a brand new book called Road Rage Justified, 50 Rules Every Driver Should Follow. So if you or someone you know needs a refresher on polite driving, pick up this entertaining, informative, and quick read. Welcome, welcome to the show, Dirk Novell. Hey, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so now you have to share with us what inspired a book on road rage. You know, every day I'm in the car, I just am reminded of kind of what people do to disturb your peace. And it's really more like social etiquette of driving. So with two young kids that will be driving in a few years, you know, I thought, why not? Let's get it on paper. And, you know, it's a tongue-in-cheek book. It's funny. It's a little edgy. But, you know, the topic is real. I mean, there's a lot of rage, and it's scary. Now, share a few statistics. When I was reading about the book, and, you know, there are some kind of scary statistics about road rage. Yeah, this is uh, from the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety, so this isn't my data, but, you know, 51%, they say 104 million drivers intentionally tailgate, 47% of drivers yell at another driver, Uh, 45% honk to show annoyance, 33% make angry gestures, 24%, which is something that I've never seen here, but block another car from changing lanes. Cutting off another vehicle on purpose is 12%, which is 24 million drivers. So lots of uh, dangerous habits. Lots of angry people. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. We should just kind of get along. I, I think it's the place where you can kind of vent. I mean, we all have to let off steam in our own little ways, and uh-huh. I'm not advocating it, but it's the one place you can do it without really taking responsibility. And it's somewhat anonymous, and you can get away right away, too. So Yeah, hopefully. So now take us through a few of the tips. I found I was guilty of a couple of these. Some Which of, ones were you guilty of? Well, probably shouldn't admit this, but I am one who will put lipstick on at a stoplight, you know, and maybe the light turns green and the person behind me gets annoyed. And I don't blame them for getting annoyed because I'm stuck there putting on my lips. <laughs> oh, rule 14. That's beauty driver. But hey, you know, you got to do it. But yeah, I see that too. If it's not the lipstick, it's the phone. Right. Everyone's so addicted to their social media or their technology. Yeah. I have a daughter. I drive her to school every other day and there's three high schools within a mile, and it's just, it's scary. I mean, no one ever looks up. And it's, uh-huh. they say it's 27 seconds when you look down to kind of get your bearings back. So, wow. pretty scary. That is scary. So now you used a pen name for this book. So I kind of fly under the radar and just kind of see how this thing went. I didn't know, like, if people would kind of get weird and kind of try to find me or whatever. But, you know, I had a friend who's a TV anchorman, and I got a chance to get on TV, and they said, you got to come out with your name. So I figured, why not? But, yeah, Nevi is a nickname of mine. Okay. Uh, Rourke is a character in one of my favorite books, The Fountainhead. Okay. So I kind of thought, you know, Nevi Rourke might be good. That'd be a good name. Author Dirk Nevelle here on the Mulberry Lane Show, talking about his book, Road Rage. Okay, now the illustrations are amusing and colorful. So who is the illustrator for the book? A guy that I hooked up with here in Seattle. His name's Trevor, and he's, uh, yeah, he was great. I would give him guidance, obviously, and Uh at first he's like, what? And then, you know, usually the second or third revision, we were pretty close to nailing it. Uh So now you suggest anonymously giving this book to someone who needs it or who could learn from a few of these tips. Now, is that passive-aggressive road rage? (laughs) You know, that's a great point. It's, uh, I have some friends, even family, who are super sensitive about their bad driving. So maybe it's just a nice way to subtly um, educate them without kind of angering them. I, I don't know. I think it's young drivers, too. Yes. So parents that have kids that are about to hit the roads, uh-huh. that's an audience that I definitely think could read this book. Yeah, anyone, though. I mean, I'm not the perfect driver, but I think I'm pretty sensitive to kind of how I come across and what I do and when you have kids you kind of look at life a little different you know I, I think I drive different than when I was 18 right absolutely and, um, you know, I think it almost comes down to just being respectful of other people you know there are times when you try to give someone who's being a rude driver you try to give them the benefit of the doubt you know maybe they're on their way to the hospital maybe they had a crisis and they're not thinking but then you wish that when you make those mistakes and you do something stupid that, you know, comes back to you, but usually you end up getting the finger. (laughs) Yeah, you never know. That's a great point. You never know the baggage someone has, whether it's a relationship issue they're having or a job. And, you know, maybe your music would be a great way to bring the rage down. Maybe people could listen to that. Your music. There you go. Your music, actually. Yeah, your music. (laughs) Thank you, Dirk. Well, we want to thank you so much, Dirk, for joining the show, telling us all about the book and where can people get their hands on it. Uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's about time uh, there is a reminder of how to be polite out on the road. I definitely think it can help. I mean, I'm not going to save the world. 
you know, it's not a Deepak type of spiritual book, <laughs> but, uh, you know, everyone can relate. And, I mean, I don't see it getting any better with traffic the way it's going. Right. That's true. And sometimes a friendly, funny reminder to, you know, make us look at ourselves and maybe change for the better is never a bad thing. Totally. I 100% agree with that. All right. And check out the book, Road Rage Justified, 50 Rules Every Driver Should Follow. Pick it up. It's author Dirk Neville here on the Mulberry Lane Show. That was Dirk Novell. Pick up Road Rage Justified for you or anyone who needs a gentle reminder on how to drive courteously. Thanks, Dirk, for bringing your humor and driving tips to the show today. Mm. Talk about a driving force. (laughs) Allie, who else do we need to thank? Well, we've got to thank travel expert and Emmy Award winning Ashley Colburn. Ashley, thanks for inspiring all of us with the creative approach to your career and for creating a career that is based on your passion. Yes, you're a do-it-yourself and do-it-all kind of girl and you do it great Mm -hmm. be sure to check out ashleycolburnproductions.com to see where you can catch her brand new series wonders and good luck on that next trip ashley finally we want to thank tijuana brass legend herb alpert herb thanks for sharing your musical journey including the founding of a&m records your philanthropic endeavors and your amazing gift in jazz music thanks for sharing your insider tips on the business and creative side of music And we also have to thank you guys for joining us today for another weekend, the first weekend of 2018. We want to invite you to join us next weekend, same time, same place. Let's make this a thing. I'm there. Me too. Me three. And with you, it makes it a party. Almost wrapping up the first episode of 2018. But first, Bo, stay happy and stay blessed. Allie. Don't forget to be awesome. Rachel, that's a wrap. Every time you love just a little, take one step closer, solving the riddle. It echoes all over the world. Every time you open.